fantastic show. Yeah, it better be, because tonight we're keeping score. Yes, and on a scale of 1 to 10, here's your score so far. (laughs) I've been wanting to do this episode for nearly two years. I have thought about it. I have made some efforts towards it, and then I have stopped and put it off and then thought about it again. I've almost certainly turned it into a bigger deal than it actually is. But today is Sunday, the 14th of January, and I'm just going to do it. Just going to record this and see what happens. Before I get into it, I just want to point to something else you might want to check out. The beautiful Aaron Irwin interviewed me about a week before I left New York for his YouTube series, Thanks for Dropping By. It was such a pleasure to do that interview with Aaron. He's done such a fantastic job with the edit of it. And Aaron says that listening to this show is what inspired him to start that YouTube channel. That's a really lovely thought. And what a pleasure it is to sit down and have somebody ask you smart questions about your own stuff. If you want to check that out, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, Hey, if nothing else, you'll get a sense of how ridiculously out of date my author photo is. (laughs) This is something that a a male podcaster would not say, but it's something I'm highly conscious of. Being on YouTube is really weird. I didn't know that I looked like that. I I can't even take a selfie. Like, I barely have any idea of what I look like. Anyway. That's not the point. The point is, thank you, Aaron. And uh, it's it means so much to me to have a little time capsule of that that time in my life. Being over there in New York, it kind of, you know, a lot of the time it feels like it happened in some kind of dream. And it's nice to have a little digital record of it, some little residue there. Yeah, actually, it was real. It happened. Okay, enough stalling. Let's get into this. Here's the idea that I had over two years ago. I want to revisit this piece that was published in the Sydney Review of Books back in 2015. It's called The Poet Tasters. This piece was written by a writer and academic called Ben Etherington. Ben is currently at University of Western Sydney. I don't know exactly when I read the piece. It probably wasn't when it came out in 2015. It was probably a couple of years after that. But it had a huge impact on me. It changed my... It changed what I did as a poet and as a writer. And I wrote to Ben in April of 2022. And this is what I said to him. I'm getting in touch because I've never forgotten the article you wrote for the Sydney Review of Books back in 2015, The Poet Tasters. Back then I was very new to trying to write and publish poetry, but I did sometimes write reviews. The article prompted me to question what reviewing poetry books in Australia was actually for. These days I make a weekly podcast called Poetry Says, where I often interview poets from around Australia. Through talking to some of the poets I've met through the podcast, I've occasionally heard the lament that, quote, poetry review culture in Australia is in the doldrums, or something to that effect. I always think back to your article and wonder whether things are better, worse, or exactly the same. So that was my pitch to Ben. I thought maybe I could have him on the show and we could do a, not quite a decade on, but 
eight years on from the poet tasters are things better are things worse what's changed and we went back and forth a bit about whether he would come on the show and and have that discussion with me in the end he was very supportive and lovely about this idea but he didn't actually want to actually want to have the conversation here I always like it when people decline, honestly, and I try to learn from that myself. I think that's a really good thing. Having done, having written this episode and having gone over Ben's work, I totally understand why he doesn't want to go back down this path. I completely get it. So Ben, if you ever listen to this, um, less than no hard feelings, I I so understand. Yeah, I have a new understanding of what this article is now. So I'm going to try to tackle it myself. It's January 2024. Probably 9 out of 10 listeners are thinking, what the hell, who's Ben Etherington and what is The Poet Tasters? I don't don't even know what the Sydney Review of Books is. I'm going to outline it for you. It's a long piece. I love the Sydney Review of Books, but many of the pieces feel intimidatingly long to me. It's part of a series that Ben wrote called Critic Watch. The byline of Critic Watch is on critics, criticism, and critical culture. Everyone loves it until they're on it. There are only seven articles which are tagged as part of Critic Watch, and most of them are from 2013. There's one from 2020, one from 2017, and there's this one, The Poet Tasters, from 2015. It seems sort of a shame to me that there are so few in such a juicy series, but again, now that I've been through the Poet Tasters with a fine-tooth comb, I can totally see why. The amount of work that Ben has put into this piece is staggering, and we'll get into that. So in short, in the article, Ben basically zooms way out to look at the state of poetry reviewing in Australia as a whole. He looks at how many reviews were published across a calendar year, where they were published, who got reviewed, who wrote the reviews, and tries to get a handle on, in general, what were those reviews like? What was the formula? What was the the nature of those reviews? To put this piece together, Ben read every single review that was written in the calendar year 2013. That's 247 reviews of poetry books. And how he did this was he he not only went through online journals, but he went and read all the print journal reviews. He sat in libraries, went through newspaper archives, and got the reviews published there, and read all those as well. I am not going to do that. (laughs) Just spoiler alert, I am absolutely not doing that for this episode. I want to try to think about just some aspects of this article and think about whether the things that Ben found when he did this survey are still true in early 2024. Mostly, I think what's going to happen here, what the result of this episode is going to be, is that I'm going to kick up a bunch of dust and questions and probably get things wrong, and I'm hoping that you will respond I'm definitely not an academic. I am an only sometimes functional person who has a full-time job. And as Pete Holmes always used to say about his show, this is a free podcast. I definitely don't read enough to be able to make any kind of sweeping claims. But I, I want to ask 
questions. And I think you might be better placed to answer them. So I'm hoping here to start a conversation about this, to follow up on that conversation that I kept hearing off mic and sometimes even on mic, this idea that Australian poetry reviewing is in the doldrums. Where do you suppose he got the name Alice? Oh, it's a family name. Mm. He was named after a maiden uncle. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to set things up by reading from not quite the start of the article, but towards the beginning. This is how Ben frames what he's doing. The field of Australian poetry is small, yet intricately interdependent. Once you adjust to its scale, you are witness to a highly dynamic system. To apprehend the logic of Australian poetry criticism, one must appreciate the significance of the fact that poets themselves constitute just about every aspect of their world. They are the writers, the publishers, the editors, the event organisers, the critics, the audiences, the anthologists, the scholars, and sometimes even the printers and distributors. So Ben's saying all that to back up this claim that he starts out with, which is basically the idea of the Australian poetry critic, that entity, doesn't really exist. There isn't really, with one notable exception, who we'll get to, there isn't really anyone, or there wasn't in in the mid-2010s, who was just a critic. Everybody in poetry is writing poetry, editing it, organising events. We all work together to create this self-sustaining interdependent system. I think that is as true now as it was in the early 2010s. I think that was true in the 1970s. I don't know if there's ever been a time when that hasn't been true in Australia. In fact, I don't know, for my overseas listeners, is that really any less true in the US or in the UK or in Canada or anywhere else? We could make the case, I suppose, that we're in a slightly different age of poetry in 2024 because in 2015 we were right on the cusp of what we've come to call insta-poetry. I found an article from January 2015 that said, uh, according to Wall Street analysts, popular photo-sharing website Instagram could be worth as much as $35 billion and may outpace Twitter as one of the most popular social networks on the planet. Uh, Instagram is now worth, quote-unquote, $47.4 billion. In 2015, there were 300 million people using it. Now, apparently, 1.4 billion people use it. Those numbers are always inflated and kind of, you know, what does that really mean? But Instagram, it's still popular, basically. And 2015, if we roll back to then, that was the year that Milk and Honey was published. Rupi Kaur's incredibly, ridiculously successful book of poetry written for Instagram. I found this article from Publishers Weekly from August of that year, which said that Milk and Honey had sold 450,000 copies and continues to move around 30,000 copies a week. So the Rupi Kaur Insta Poetry wave hadn't broken yet. It was cresting. And... I think you could make the argument that it has changed things. I always think back to my my conversation with my, my dear, dear friend who said to me, you know, I didn't really get what you did uh, as a poet until I, I read this collection by Kate Bayer. Kate Bayer being 
a poet who is famous on Instagram. And, you know, me with my glass ego was like, I do, I do something very different to that. I'll have you know. <laughs> but, but the point I'm trying to make is this friend who had no interest in poetry now owns, I think, at least one collection. Maybe we can make the argument that it isn't just poets who are the audiences these days. But let me come back to the article here just to tease out a bit more Ben's characterization of the role of the poet critic. He writes, with her wide reading, and this is the paragraph that really fucked me up (laughs) quite early on. He says, with her wide reading and long memory, the poet critic can pull up the latest warehouse dweller, passing off Forbesian informality as her own insouciance, or remind us of that volume from the late 1980s, which did everything that the eco-poet claims as her own post-human invention. The problem with this picture is that virtually all poetry critics are also poets. Of the 27 people who published three or more reviews of Australian poetry collections in an Australian periodical, print and online, in 2013, only two are not themselves active poets. Peter Craven and Martin Jewell. Craven, of course, is exceptional, a generalist who takes the time to write about poetry. And Jewell is an even rarer creature, an academic editor and publisher who has devoted much of his long career to reviewing contemporary Australian poetry without having a stake in it as a poet or master theorist. Steadfastly even-handed, he publishes monthly reviews on his own website in addition to those completed for a range of journals. That is still true, as we'll get into. Martin Jewell is still going strong. The reason, the reason that paragraph fucked me up, though, was uh, when I read it, I thought, yeah, no, you really should be able to pull up the latest warehouse dweller and say, oh, you're just being like Forbes, or you're being, uh, you're trying to, sell this book as, a, as an original take on eco-poetry, but such, so-and-so has, has done that 10 years ago. But when I was writing reviews around this time, I absolutely had not read anything like enough to be able to do that. Uh, how'd you like that song by those prairie dogs? Well, there's a number I could go for. <laughs> but coming back to this question of, are there any people who are not poets who actually write reviews apart from Martin Jewell. Um, There is one other example I can think of, someone who I've been lucky enough to have on this show, who has worked as an Australian poetry critic and uh, who is now editing the Sydney Review of Books, but who, to my knowledge, is not working on publishing his own poems, and that is James Jang. Hello, James. But this is where I want to ask you, are there others? Are there other people that I don't know about? There must be other people out there who do reviewing work who are not trying to make their name as poets. Whether that's an important distinction or not, whether whether you have to be not a poet to effectively review Australian poetry... I think that's an open question, but the premise of this part of Ben's article seems to be that 
you can't really be an effective critic if you are that embedded in the scene. And that is something that James Jang talked about when I interviewed him on here. The episode is titled A Certain Claustrophobia. Like he talks about this thing of can you really speak freely about people's work when you're going to see them at the next book launch, uh, when they might be in charge of whether you get published, when it's also interdependent. That's another part of this that I would love to hear your thoughts on. Because I don't know if it necessarily precludes good criticism, being a poet who's working in the scene. I think it could just as easily make your work better as a critic. Let me keep going into this article, which is, which is huge and complex and uh, has taken me a long time to come to grips with. This next part of the article is where I think we get to the most interesting stuff about what's changed between 2013 and 2024. Because I do hear this refrain off mic, Australian poetry is lacking a strong critical culture. And the question I'm trying to ask and maybe slightly answer here is what would it look like if it was strong? And the part of the article that I think can answer this the best is, so along with reading all the 247 reviews published in the calendar year 2013, Ben went through and put together this league table of the number of reviews published by each publication in that year. So he's gone through and he's found all the, all the periodicals that publish poetry reviews. He's counted up the number of reviews and he's listed out who the editors are and then put them in order of, of volume. So Cordite published the most and Westerly published just one review equal to the Sunday Age and Mianjin, actually, at the bottom of the table. So I thought, you know, he was my, um, my bright idea was I'm going to go through and do the same thing. I'm going to go through all these periodicals and I'm going to count up the number of poetry reviews and I'm also going to figure out whether they were written by poets or quote-unquote real critics or independent critics maybe is what we could call them. Oh my God, <laughs> this is so hard. I spent the better part of a day trying to do this. I gave it my best shot, but there's going to be errors in here. These, these numbers that I'm about to quote to you are just indicative. What I did was I knocked out the newspapers. So the Australian, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Age and the Sunday Age. I just didn't worry about them because I'm not going to go and sit in a library and pull out all the newspapers. And again, I'm not going to subscribe to four national newspapers to get behind their paywalls and figure out what's going on there. I just didn't worry about the newspapers. <laughs> but if you take out the newspapers, if we look at the total from 2013, the total number of poetry reviews published in periodicals, not in newspapers, there were 208. In 2023, the grand total of reviews published in those same periodicals was down to 112. Let me attempt to break these numbers down for you. In 2013, Cordite was the biggest, um, biggest source of poetry reviews. They did 72 reviews in that year. In 2023, 
I counted 14 reviews in Cordite, but many of those were multi-book reviews. So there were actually 31 poets who got reviewed in Cordite. That might seem like a really shocking drop, but to me, the shocking thing is that in 2013, Cordite did 72 poetry reviews. Like that seems like a staggering number. I'm not sure how they did that. Maybe that year was an outlier. I don't know. And I want to say at the outset that one of the things we really need to keep in mind as we think about this is the fact that money has to be paid to the reviewer, to the person who's doing the work. So they cost money for the journal and there is a lot less money to go around in 2023 than there was even in 2013. So I am absolutely in no way having a go at any of these editors when I say this journal had fewer reviews. It's hard. It's hard work. And and what I'm trying to get at here is the question of whether the whether the review culture in Australia is healthier or less healthy, but not to single out any specific journal. So I'm going to go through and talk about all the differences that I found. At Australian Book Review, there was an increase. They did 36 reviews, up from 24. Rochford Street Review was down, 24 to 17. We completely lost a source of reviews that used to exist. Australian Poetry Journal used to have this section online called Soto, and that had 19 reviews on it in the year that Ben surveyed it. It doesn't exist anymore, so that's 19 knocked out altogether. Mascara is basically the same, 16 in 2023, up from 15. I'm just going down the list here. This is where I got really stuck. Southerly. Okay, Southerly has been around since the 1930s. In 2013, they did 12 reviews. For the life of me, I can't find anything about what Southerly did in 2023. And this is where I feel like an absolute dolt because I'm like, okay, uh, did they go on hiatus? Did did some huge drama happen that I don't know about? Um did they lose their funding? Like what? I just feel so stupid saying all this because I should know. I should really know what's going on at Southerly and I, I don't. But that does really impact the total because Southerly did 12 reviews in 2013. As far as I can tell in 2023, nothing. Martin Jewell, still going strong. 10 reviews in 2023 compared to 11. Just keeps powering on. You're an inspiration, Martin. <laughs> Rabbit was another big source of reviews back in the day. They did eight in 2013. They only seemed to do two last year, but I think that might be a bit of an anomaly. One of the issues was taking up with publishing the winners of a prize, so that that really impacts what you can put in the issue. So I don't know if that's a fair comparison. Sydney Review of Books was basically the same, Quadrant was down to two from five. That was gross. I hated looking at that. Um, Foamy doesn't seem to exist anymore. But again, like it seems like there was an issue published in 2023, but the website now seems to be down. <laughs> they published three reviews in 2013 for, for what that's worth. Mianjin was basically the same and Westerly was an increase up to two from one. So... <laughs> If you could follow all that, basically, 
let's say let's say our grand total for 2023 let's let's generously bump it up to 133 reviews because some of the reviews were multi-book reviews so if we count each of those as single which I don't really know if that's fair but let's just do it anyway 133 reviews in 2023 that's still well down from 208 in 2013 so 75 fewer reviews so what does that mean no boo How many reviews do we need? I couldn't find a list of all the poetry books that were published in 2022. And I think that's the year you would need to look at if you wanted to analyze which books should have been reviewed in 2023. I think it takes about a year. I know personally that there were 22 first books published in 2022 because I read them all for the Mary Gilmore And I looked at Cordite's list of books available for review. And there were 60 books of poetry published in 2023, according to that list. So let's let's say for argument's sake that in 2022, there are about 60 books, like about the same number. And if we stick with our rough total of 133 reviews, that would mean that every book, if every book got reviewed equally, they could all be reviewed just a little bit over twice each. Back in his survey, Ben says that most published titles receive at least two reviews and established names can expect at least four or five. We wouldn't have been able to do that last year if we had 133 reviews, even if we had that generous total and we had 60 books published, we just wouldn't get there. So... Yes, we can say, assuming my maths is correct, we can say that we can say there were fewer reviews overall and that each book received less critical attention on average. Okay, that's the math section of this episode over. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I, I quit maths in year 11 and I absolutely hate doing this kind of stuff. I, I spent the better part of a day trying to figure all that out and I still feel like half of it's wrong. Um, but we're going to leave leave the numbers behind now. Just for what it's worth, though, before I move on, the books that I saw pop up most uh, in the reviews that I looked at when I did my when I did my survey were Sarah Hollenbatt's The Jaguar and Harry Reid's Leave Me Alone. And I just so happened to have spare copies of each. I had a, a voucher that my family gave me for paperback and I went in and I thought, I just want to have extra copies of those two books. And I was going to do it as some kind of like prize thing. But I think what I want to do is just say to you, whoever would like a copy of either of those books, if you send me an email, I'll post a copy to you. First in best dressed, if you want a copy of The Jaguar or Leave Me Alone, both really phenomenal books. Um, I want to get them into the hands of as many people as possible. So if you want one, let me know. I did also, I did also want to say, when I was going through the Mianjin archives, I found this article from uh, Autumn 2023 by Elise Dowden. Hello, Elise. 
It's titled If Selfies Could Talk, and it starts out by saying, in a recent interview with Alice Allen, James Jang laments the prize culture that permeates Australian literature, arguing that readers who avoid bad books may be left with a superficial sense of what's good. Wow. Thank you so much, Elise. That really, that really floored me. I was not expecting to be, I was not expecting my show to be quoted in Mianjin. That's, that's probably as close as I'll ever get to being published in Mianjin. I, I really, really appreciate it. That's, that's just so lovely. I also noticed that Liam Fernie cited me in a review of Daniel Swain from a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, thanks, Liam. Thanks, guys. Wow. I feel I'm, I'm being taken more seriously than I perhaps deserve. Uh, but it, it thrills me either way. Okay. Do these numbers actually tell us anything? Does, does having fewer reviews actually mean a weaker critical culture? Does everything need to be reviewed? Like, does every book need to get a review? Here's something else that Ben says a little further into the article. He writes... Poetry reviews can take a long time to emerge, so a calendar year is an arbitrary parameter. Fiona Hyle's Novelties, for example, does not appear here, and her publisher, Hunter, is well down the list. This is the list of publishers who put out poetry books in the calendar year of 2013. Hunter is well down the list, and yet this collection won the New South Wales Premier's Award. And I was thinking, I, was, I read that bit and I thought, yeah, like... Is reviewing, is that the thing that matters in the long run? I was thinking about like just just the books in my house, the books on my bookshelf and the books that I feel have had a ripple effect or, or that come up in conversation with other poets when we talk about books that we like. And I don't know if these are always necessarily the ones that get the critical attention, the reviews at the time. There's this little tiny book that I have called Body Poems by Anupama Pilbrow. I fucking love that book. And I know, I know a lot of other poets love it. Is, is critical attention the thing that, that really matters there? I mentioned before that Liam Fernie reviewed Daniel Swain's chapbook, which is called You Deserve Every Happiness But I Deserve More. Fantastic title. Uh, it got a review in Rabbit by Liam. It's a great review. Excellent chapbook. I don't know if people read it. Daniel Swain doesn't live here. He lives over in the US. I don't know. Like, I remember I was at the launch of it and then somebody else read from the book. Got an amazing reception. Huge laughs. Everybody loved it. Uh, I don't know if it's... If it's really had that, like, I don't know if it's stuck around, but it should have, in my opinion, <laughs> my, my totally unbiased critical opinion. And then I'm thinking about the Jaguar, Sarah Hollenbatt's new collection, won the Stella, heaps of reviews. Does that mean that we're still going to be talking about the Jaguar in a couple of years? We probably will, but it's hard to predict this stuff. Bringing all that up, I, I'm just trying to get at this thing of, is it reviewing specifically that makes the critical culture strong? 
Or is there something else that's as important? Open question. Like so, so many aspects of this episode. I'm really hoping you'll have smart, smarter things to say about this than me. Moving on. Yeah, that's great, the way. Great. Uh, now, why can't they do numbers like that? We just did. Oh, yeah, so you did. Uh, wasn't very good after all. Uh, ooh, ooh. Moving on, I, I want to talk about what it's like to write a review. It takes fucking ages. It takes so long to write a review. When I used to write reviews for Cordyce, when Bonnie Cassidy was the editor, I would spend, I, I used to track it, and I would spend upwards of 20 hours on my reviews. I got paid 200 bucks for the last review that I wrote for them. So, 10 bucks an hour. Really, really hard hours. Like, I really, really worked for it. I'm just editing this back now and I want to jump in and make this really clear. That's a really good rate. I think that might have been the most that anyone was getting paid for reviewing work at that time. And I'm, I don't know what Cordite's rate is at the moment, but I'm sure it's still pretty much as much money as you can make reviewing um, poetry in Australia, unless you're writing for a newspaper. Um, I, I feel like I'm putting Cordite on the hot seat in this episode and, and that's not that that's a result of the fact that they that that is a journal where the majority of reviews take place. I was making good money in terms of what you could make for writing poetry reviews. In most other cases I would have been making zero dollars an hour. I hope that's clear. In saying that, it was extremely good for me. It was very good for me as a newish poet to be sitting there looking at a book and thinking is this good is this bad how can I articulate what I think about it for myself I was so aware that I was faking it though right like I was not the reviewer who could say oh your Forbesian informality is not your own (laughs) I just didn't I hadn't done the reading this is where going to uni would have really helped me I remember specifically looking at Bonnie's review of John Matias' work that was published in Cordite um, sometime in the mid-2010s, and I just thought, I just remember thinking, I will never be able to do this. I will never know enough to be able to write like this. And, uh, and what I was doing was just following the formula that Ben <laughs> pretty um, scathingly Although I don't, think, I don't think he means to be scathing, but um, yeah, he, he lays out the formula of what happens in a poetry review. There are five steps. One, introduce the volume, the poet, and their previous publications. Two, describe the poet's overall aesthetic with reference to European and or North American antecedents. Three, quote approvingly, from two or three choice poems with some technical commentary. Four, express reservations about one or two poems. Five, affirm nevertheless the worthiness of the volume as a whole. So (laughs) when I read that, I just stopped, I just stopped in my tracks. I just thought that's what I've been doing. That's all I've been doing. That's all I've ever done. And I'm pretty sure that's all I'll, be a- all I'll ever be able to do. 
as a poetry critic. I need to stop doing this. And I did. I stopped writing poetry reviews because I just thought, what am I adding? I have nothing useful to say. It's useful for me. Like I'm learning something every time I write a review, but I'm just doing that five-step formula. And that's all anyone's getting. Okay, getting towards the end of the article, the other other part of it, and the bit that when I say all that about how, oh, I, I don't really know enough to be able to write um, good reviews, and I, I still basically feel that way. The other thing that I'm not mentioning is that claustrophobia that James Jang mentioned when I spoke to him. This is the way that Ben puts it. He says, the obvious and probably accurate conclusion is that few poets writing about fellow poets in a smallish scene will want to offend, and fewer will want to harm their own careers and networks. And that's... I can't see any reason why that would have changed. That said, I do think that there are reviewers out there who are... who have the the skill and the critical balance, they can walk that tightrope between writing a really strong review that actually assesses a collection on its merits and points out its weaknesses, but at the same time, they, they don't lose anything themselves. They don't lose anything career-wise or network-wise. I think those people probably existed in 2013, and in fact, Ben points them out when he praises a couple of reviewers in particular, one of them being Bonnie Cassidy, the other one being Martin Jewell. I think these people were out there then and they're out there now, but, and again, this is where it would be great to hear from you, but I, I suspect there are still many, many people out there who don't want to write reviews because they don't want to offend people because the scene is too small. In the last part of this article, Ben addresses what was at that time the most um, difficult example of this, which is the controversy surrounding Jeff Page's piece, Obscurity in Poetry, a Spectrum. Um, And he, he goes into detail about that and about the various responses to that article and the, the kind of, you know, the fight that kicked off in the comments and the fact that part of the article was pulled. I'm not going to go into that part of Ben's article in this episode. I'm actually going to be addressing it from a different angle in the next episode. But I will say that that is the part of this article where Ben has his best line, which is conflict. Ah, turn it off. An opera singer who tap dances and sings cowboy songs. I wonder if there's anything she isn't good at. Yes, choosing what show to be on. (laughs) The last bit I want to quote from Ben's article here is where he starts to sum up. And he says, It seems that the criticism of poetry is falling short of its civic responsibility. We see the profile of a community turned inwards, which can forget that there might be a broader readership curious to know about what is going on. And that's where I I think I need to come back to Sarah Holland-Batt, who, of course, put together 
a whole year's worth of columns for The Australian and turned those columns into a book called Fishing for Lightning, which does exactly what Ben's pointing to here. Takes a poem, looks at it critically, and discusses it with the general reader in mind. I found a review of that book written by Jeff Page, the title of which, which was not Jeff's title, I imagine, the title of which was Hate Poetry? This impressive book might just change your mind. And uh, I want to quote from Jeff's review here at the very end where he says, Fishing for lightning is indispensable for anyone interested at any level in contemporary Australian poetry. And isn't that all of us? Well, Jeff, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's, that's not all of us. And that's, the, that's where Ben lands with the poet tasters is he kind of says, not only is this scene too small for there to be real critical commentary, uh, but it leaves out, it leaves the general reader shut out of the conversation. Many, many people are not at all interested in contemporary Australian poetry and they need um, quite a bit of hand-holding to make it in. And that's another question I think that I want to ask here is, do we want to invite them in? Are we, do we worry about that? Does that matter to us? If people don't get it, I mean, at the start here, Ben says, it is fair to say that committed poets have the indifference of metal heads to people who don't get what they are doing. It does, it does feel partially true. I've gone on for nearly an hour here. I am completely exhausted and I, I really need your help. I really want to hear from you. One of the questions that I have in my mind is like there's got to have been some really good, really solid, non-formulaic reviews that have come out in the last year that I have missed. And I would love to know what those are so I can point to them. More broadly, I just want to ask you, do you think the critical culture in poetry in Australia is in a bad way or is this all just so much hand-wringing? Is it actually fine? If you think it is fine, what do you think is working? And if you think there are problems, what specifically do you think we need to change? Like, is it that thing that Ben says about we need more people like Martin Jewell, like Peter Craven, who are out there and don't write poems themselves, but will review poetry? Do we need five to ten more of those people? Or is it something else that we need? Okay, that's my, that's my attempt to sum up this very, what, what is the word? Like, this article just really, it, it, it was like a grenade. <laughs> it was just like, I read it and I just thought, I can't keep doing this. I don't want to keep doing this. I, um, I never want to write another review. I'm, I'm finished with reviewing. I'm sure that wasn't Ben's intent. I'm sure that's not what he was going for when he wrote it. And also, like, that's such a, you know, taking one's bat and ball and going home is um, not the most mature response to a challenge. I suppose what I did do is I, I started making the show. I kept making the show. This is not a critical space, though. 
and I intentionally keep it that way. I talk about stuff that I like and I talk about stuff that I don't like, but I don't I don't really want to set myself up as any kind of like authority. Uh, I really hope that you know as a listener that I do not consider myself an authority. Like, yeah, I have, I have stuff that I like, but I, every time I say that I like something, I want you to know that I just, it's just my take. Like I just like what I like. And that's not a particularly strong critical stance. I don't think. Anyway, like Ben, I, I kind of never want to think about any of this for 10 more years, but also I, I do want to have this conversation on mic that episode with James I think like so many people talk to me about it and continue to bring it up and I think this is a I think this is a conversation that we want to have and I think this is a problem that we want to solve but I sure as fuck can't do it on my own so I I really need some help here okay thank you Ben Uh, I did this all completely without Ben's permission but thank you anyway Ben and um, that's all I've that's all I've got for you. I think I give myself like a six out of ten for that. <laughs> well, they say all good things come to an end. What's that got to do with this show? <laughs> Postscript. I just finished editing that one. Just finished listening back to it, and I think it's worth mentioning this. I was listening to Ratbag Poetics the other day, which is going great guns. Good on you, David. Uh, David was talking about a symposium he went to here in Melbourne maybe a month ago that was run by Overland where they actually talked specifically about this question of the critical culture in Australia. I'm really sorry I missed it. Sounds like some something I really should have been at. But um, apparently, I don't know if this was a joke that David was making or if this is real, but apparently it was called How to Win a Knife Fight in a Phone Booth. If that was the actual title, that's fucking brilliant. Um but yeah, apparently they were talking about this exact question and the challenge that Evelyn Araluen, who is one of the editors of Overland, put out to the audience was, look, you guys just got to be more honest. This is all me telling you what David told his audience on his show. So it's third hand. But uh, yeah, so maybe go over and, and listen to David's episode rather than my retelling of it. But I guess it just made me think like, I didn't I didn't really talk about that aspect of it like yeah maybe maybe that's the central thing right like if we have 247 reviews but they're all just people pleasing bullshit then you might as well have none but if we had five really like um you know solid kind but honest reviews then I don't know I think I think that that would legitimately change things um how would how would it change things I think one of the things that happens when you don't have a healthy review culture is that people just publish whatever the fuck they want like maybe that sounds obvious but if you have no idea what you're aiming for and your editor has no time to give you feedback and you've put together a book and it's like it's pretty good and half of your poems have been published in journals 
but you you don't work in a culture where there's a really strong sense of of what's working and why then you'll just put it out and your friends will buy it and then probably I don't know maybe five people will pick up copies in bookshops and maybe it gets one review or maybe it gets none and then that's your book like that's the life of your book so you just end up with this world of like heaps and heaps of work coming out lots of enthusiasm lots of action but maybe it doesn't mean much and that hurts you as a poet too you as the poet who's put out the book that you don't know if it worked like you hope it did but you got you got really got no idea um so honesty helps because even if you get uh, eviscerated (laughs) which hopefully you don't I mean okay nobody wants to be eviscerated even if you get a, a review that is um hard to sit with to put it more gently at least you know at least you know what to push back against and if you read reviews of other people's work and it says you know there was this that and the other problem then you know what to avoid or you know maybe you don't want to avoid it and that's exactly what you want to do and you're like you know what fuck you reviewer this is exactly this is what I'm going for and and I know why I'm doing it and I've made a decision to do it that way does that make sense Tom made these really strong drinks last night and I'm I'm just feeling the effects of it still. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. What else can I tell you? Been rewatching season one of Twin Peaks, that's it's been good. That uh, beautiful Josh Megan and his wonderful wife Talia sent me a key ring which is the hotel key tag from the Twin Peaks Hotel, the Great Northern, with Agent Cooper's room number on it. So I, I, ha- I have that on my keys now, and, and now I feel really, really cool all the time. That's another thing. Yeah, do you want any more facts? Any more Melbourne facts? All right, that's enough. I see sparkles in the water. For stars in the sky But green's the color of spring And green can be cool